And so we thought about the fact that God deserves all our praise, but actually when we meet to worship, he doesn't gain anything. We gain. So his glory, but our gain. Uh, He's the God who needs nothing from us. And then last week we thought about the the principle of worship. This was kind of, I suppose, getting on to more, I suppose, more specifics of what a, a morning gathered worship service or what even gathered worship service looks like the principle of worship which is crucially that is god who decides how we worship him so it's not up to us or me in the week to sit at home and think creatively about how to worship god um god tells us the things he wants to happen in a worship service and this week just the, the final week of the series uh, we're going to look at the pattern of worship look at all those p's um why do our services look as they do so every now and again I get questions about the service and you know, yeah, that's basically what we're going to think about um, this morning. Uh, one clarification, last week um, I spoke about two things, about elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. Um, without being too kind of school teachery, can I remember what are the elements are? What is an element versus a circumstance? Things that don't change the elements, yeah. things that don't change. Yeah, exactly. They, they are the, the building blocks. So give me an example of some elements of worship. Prayer. Prayer. Yeah. Preaching, preaching, preaching the word, yeah. More Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper. Star people in every class. Um, <laughs> I can see where Peter learns everything as well. Uh, I always knew it. Um, yeah, prayer, preaching, Lord's Supper, singing. Those are the elements, the things, the building blocks. The circumstances. What are circumstances? Yeah, okay. That would be an example of it. The style of you sing. You know, the circumstances are the kind of how you do the elements. And those things aren't fixed in Scripture. I think the elements are, we're told what to do, but how you do them, how long do you preach for? Um, we're preaching through Romans, so and in church we tend to move systematic through, you know, Romans, then we do another book, we move, you don't have to do that, there's not a part of the Bible that says you must preach in the way that we preach, um, there's no part of the Bible that says you must sing five songs on a Sunday or whatever, so the circumstances, sit up, sit, stand, um, stand to sing, sit to listen, um, they're totally cultural, okay, you've just got to make a wise decision, until very, quite recently really, by the way, um, when it comes to the sermon, uh, either preacher would sit down and you guys would all stand. Okay, so seats in church are a relatively recent invention. <clears throat> One to think about. Um, keep you awake in sermons, wouldn't it? Um, now, the reason I go back to the element circumstance, the reason I go back to it is what we're talking about today is not that kind of element you must kind of territory. So I'm not saying that every service must look like um, the Christchurch service. Nor am I saying, therefore, that scripture binds you to do things in the, in the kind of order that we're doing them. But neither did Peter, Matt and I just sit down five years ago and just pull stuff out of a hat. So there is a reason why the service is as it is. Uh, we'll look a bit at the Old Testament and then, um, yeah, look at our, our service. So, story and structure of the Old Testament. Structures tell stories. There's a guy called Brian Chappell, who's a great writer on various things. His, his book on worship opens with that. Structures tell stories. Um, that's true of physical buildings, isn't it? When you go into a, a building, it gives you... So, when you walk into this 
building it. It kind of has a sort of, you know, it has certain vibes in it, a bit hipster, a bit whatever. Um, if you go into a, a, perhaps you've been on the continent, been to, to Spain or France or a, a really kind of Catholic country, um, if you go into a heavily Catholic church, what do you see? Like building, in a building. Go into the building, what kind of things do you tend to see? Statue of Mary. Okay, Statue of Mary. Very likely some sort of Statue of Mary. Yep, a big crucifix of Jesus on the cross. Yep. Candles. Candles. Yep, very likely there are candles, perhaps some incense as well, burning. Yep. Um, okay, lots of images, exactly. Yeah, loads of images. Maybe glass, maybe paintings. Um, loads of images very often. Um, what is likely to be, as you walk in, what is likely to draw your attention? What is the kind of dominant thing? Um, yeah, the altar. Okay, so a massive stone altar, it's got to be stone. Um, and as you walk in, everything will point up. And in some sort of, uh, some Anglican churches as well, you know, some of our big cathedrals, same thing. You'll say the, the, uh, the cathedral in Derby, um, which only got upgraded relatively recently, I think in the 70s. But um, you walk in and the, 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 all the kind of attention is towards the altar, as they would see it, which was kind of also um, fenced off. You don't go in that bit. That's a holy place. Um, why? Well, because, in Roman Catholic understanding, the, the altar where you celebrate the mass, the, um, the re-sacrificing, as it were, of Jesus, the, the place where you, through transubstantiation, the body, sorry, the bread becomes the body, the wine becomes the blood. Um, that is kind of you know, like, that's where the action really happens. And so the, the whole um, building was built to focus your attention on it. They don't want that out of the way. Um, Protestant church, okay, if you went to a, a sort of classically built Protestant church, the centre of attention wouldn't be the altar, the table, but it would be the pulpit, because they wanted to put the word of God central. So in the Reformation, people like Luther and Calvin, all those kind of they shoved the pulpit central. And often you'll see... Um, the pulpit is up there and there's the table below. But the pulpit is, is there to tell the story that it's the word that is central in worship, not some sort of representation of a sacrifice of Jesus or something like that. It's also, by the way, why um, uh, in, a, in a Roman Catholic service, um, if this was a table um, and we had the, the, blood, uh, the, blood, <laughs> the wine and the bread on it, if I was the priest in a Roman Catholic church, it would all be done like this. Because I, the priest, am, am between Christ, God and Christ, and you, just the normal lay people. Okay? It's my job to be the intermediary between the two of you. Uh, I'm, I'm not in, this, in a sense, I'm sheltering you from the real action. Whereas, in a Protestant church service, okay, you'll never see me do that, doing my magic, because it's telling a story. Okay? I'm not a priest to intercede between you and God. Um, there's nothing that comes between Jesus and his people. So again, in the Reformation, people started serving the Lord's Supper, standing behind the table, so it's direct access um, for the people. In fact, sometimes they even put the table in the middle of the, the church so that we were all gathered around it. Anyway, the point is structures tell stories. And that is true of um, uh, the Old Testament tabernacle too. If, if you know that... Um, the setup of the Old Testament. Do you remember that the, the tabernacle was the meeting place between God and his people? And um, I probably should have 
bought something to draw on, but I forgot. Um, it was set up in a particular way. It was set up with, a gar- with the entrance of the east, because the entrance of Eden, the place where God originally met with man, was at the east. So you always had to come in from the east, heading back west, as it were, heading back to Eden, symbolically. Okay, it's telling the story. As you go to the tabernacle, you're going back to God's presence, back to fellowship with God. If you were the priest walking to work, there would be certain sort of things on the way that, that told you a story. Okay, it wasn't random where they were put. God was very specific about where things were put. So you always come through the entrance. There's only one way into the tabernacle. You can't come any way you want. There's only one way, because there's only one way back to God. The first thing you'd see, what would be the first thing you see as you come into the, the, the courtyard? Does anyone know what the first thing would strike you? Great big altar. Okay, that's the first thing, a bronze altar. So before you've gone into the holy place, the most holy place, there's a great big bronze altar, which is the place of sacrifice. Why? Well, because the first thing that needs to happen, if you're going to get to God, who dwells in that most holy place, is there's going to have to be a sacrifice to pay for your sins. So you walk in through the door, you want to approach God. The first thing that needs to happen is sacrifice, something paid for your sins. As you move on, the next thing you get to is a, a basin, okay, a, cl- a basin of water. Why? Because the next thing that God does for you, okay, after he's paid for your sins, is cleanse you. Okay, he slowly cleanses you. Okay, that's a picture of the ongoing work of Christ in your life, isn't it? Okay, Jesus dies for you, pays for your sins, forgiven, and then slowly transforms you, cleanses you over time. Then as the priest walked on, altar, cleansing, he would finally get into the tabernacle proper, the holy place where God dwelled. And there he would find a table with bread on it and a candlestick. It's a bit like a dining room. And that is properly into God's house. It's a picture of fellowship with God. You're welcome. Uh, there's the bread, the bread of life waiting for you. Oh, Jesus, the light of the world. You're there with God having fellowship with him. And so just the walk to work told, if you like, in pictorial form, the story of the gospel. To approach God, in order that God and man might be friends together, reunited, there's going to have to be a sacrifice, the altar, cleansing, the basin, and it will lead to fellowship. Okay, Twelve loaves are on that table, one for each of the tribes of Israel. So it wasn't just God eating, it was everybody eating. So the structure told a story, it kind of prophetically told the story of the gospel. Well, come with me to the book of Leviticus and chapter 9. I know it's not everyone's favourite book of the Bible, but Leviticus 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And for the first time, we have the tabernacle in action okay, in Leviticus 9. We touched on this, I think, a week or two ago. But this is the first time it, it kicks in. And Aaron is going to offer various sacrifices. And what becomes really clear, and in fact, this, this happens a number of times in the Bible. Anytime we see one of these kind of worship gatherings in action, is that the sacrifices that the people have been taught about in the first part of Leviticus, Leviticus 137, they happen in a particular order. Okay, it's not a free-for-all. Pick whichever one you want. They always happen in a particular order. Um, so if you look at verse 2, um, he said, God by Moses says to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Uh, and then in verse 3, Take 
um, say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering um, and a calf and a goat, goat a lamb, sorry, both of you without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a peace offering. So the order always goes, okay, the sin offering, then the burnt offering, and then the peace offering. Okay, and I know that all these sacrifices you kind of like, um, but that, the, those three always go in that order. Okay, a sin offering, a burnt offering, and then a peace offering. And we can look at different times in the Bible when this happens, and it, it's always that order. Why? Because each of the each of the offerings actually has a different message. And the first one, uh, the first one, the sin offering, um, that is about atonement. So we read about the sin offering, we read the early chapters of, of um, Leviticus. We see that that is the one where, you know, you, you've sinned, you confess your sins on the animal, the animal dies, and we, we read your sins atoned for. So that is the dealing with your sin offering, getting you forgiven offering. The burnt offering literally actually is a, an ascension offering. Okay, it's, um, the word burnt means sort of totally consumed and transformed into smoke. And that is the second one you offered. So you've dealt with your sin... Then you do another offering, another animal dies. And this one, the whole animal is burnt up. That's what's special about it. That's why the ESV calls it a burnt offering, but it's literally an essential offering. The whole animal goes up in smoke, ascends. Uh, why is it called an ascension offering? Well, this is the offering that brings you, transforms you, and brings you into the presence of God. So again, the animal is, is you, as it were, this is your substitute. Your sin's been dealt with, but you're still transforming. Okay, you're... You're still you. <laughs> still a sinner, aren't you? And so this whole animal is burnt on the altar. And symbolically, well, literally, the smoke would go up, wouldn't it? But as the smoke goes up from the altar that's out in the courtyard, um, it, it arrives, as it were, on the gold altar that's in the, the holy place. You, you're meant to think of the tabernacle. We looked at this in a series of Leviticus. You're meant to think of the tabernacle like a three-story tent. You can't build a three-story tent, can you? Um, but each, le- each room, the courtyard, the holy place and the most holy place, gets more and more holy. You see it in how it's built. So outside everything's bronze. And then in the middle it turns to silver and gold. Okay, it's kind of like Olympic medals. And so as, as, as the burnt offering is offered, it's as if you, replaced by the animal, are turned into smoke, transformed, and you go up into God's presence. Okay, you, smoke goes up and it arrives symbolically in the holy place, in God's house where there is a gold altar burning incense, which is acceptable to God. So again, you've had an offering that's about dealing with your sin, an offering that's about transforming you to bring you into God's presence. And then the third offering, the peace offering, the peace offering is nothing to do with sin whatsoever. The peace offering is the one that you ate. So you sacrifice the animal, but at no point does the priest then say, your sin is atoned for, or it's nothing to do with that. The peace offering is a, is a kind of fellowship offering. It doesn't make peace between you and God. It says, hey, you are at peace. So let's eat together. So some of the animal was burnt, eaten by God. And some of the animal was eaten by you. It was a fellowship meal. Again, do you see the story in the sacrifices? Forgiveness, transformation, fellowship. It's the same as the order in a tabernacle these aren't random God was telling a story in other words basically the whole Old Testament worship system the structure and the sacrifices are telling a story and it's the story of the gospel there's a gospel pattern to Old Testament worship 
Now, when you come to the New Testament, as we said last week, there is no book of the Bible or chapter of the Bible that says, now, here is how every service must work. I think we're told the things we're meant to do, but there's no one service plan, as it were, obviously, in Scripture. But um, I think there is great wisdom in learning from the worship pattern of the Old Testament, which prophesied the gospel story and kept retelling the gospel story in the pattern of worship. Looking at that and thinking, huh, perhaps it would be wise, therefore, for our worship to tell that same gospel story. So the pattern of service at Christchurch that you'll see every week um, is repetitive. It's based on the Old Testament pattern, the prophesied of the gospel. It's based on the gospel itself. It is, in fact, the pattern of service that the vast majority of churches, particularly Protestant churches, but not actually exclusively Protestant churches, have followed throughout church history. So whether you're a Anglican, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Congregationalist, or whatever, this is the basic pattern that services fall into. Because the idea is the whole service is ministry of the word. Um, I was converted in a summer camp, never went to church for years, um, didn't know much about church. And we were drilled um, that what really matters is the word of God. Okay, the thing. And basically everything else is, you know, whatever. I mean, no one would say it's useless, uh, don't worry about it. But that was kind of the implication. Communion, bit weird. Catholics are into it. For some reason we have to do it, but... Um, singing, that's charismatics, isn't it? Uh, don't worry too much about that. Uh, it was really kind of the talk. Everything's about the talk. And I think what that did to me is make me look at the service and think, kind of everything else is warm-up, and then the real action is the sermon, and then everything else afterwards is kind of whatever. So it doesn't matter if you're late, as long as you're there for the sermon. And actually, I've been part of churches where people will turn up um, in time for the sermon. Don't like singing. Um, turn up for the sermon and just not engage with everything else. That is a, that's a, a travesty. The whole service is ministry of the word, not just the sermon. And what we, what we hope is that the service itself, alongside, of course, the preaching, that's still a high point, um, the service itself is therefore reminding us of the gospel, re-preaching the gospel to us. So what I want to do is, relatively quickly, is, is run through the different parts of the service. But just let me pause. I've spoken quite a lot. Let me pause. Any questions at this stage before we actually get to the kind of New Testament, sorry, the New Testament, Christchurch pattern? Happy. Great. I was just ready to give me a chance to have some coffee. Okay. So on the sheet, said, these are the these are the things you will see in a Christchurch service. Some of them will be familiar. Some of them you probably have noticed. Some of them you may not have done. We begin with a call to worship. It's God who rescues us, not us who find God. Um, Jesus came to the good shepherd came to seek and we seek Him. And so we begin with a with God's word, not ours. Uh, a call to worship. It's an invitation. So typically, I might read a verse from a psalm. Um, I should have actually looked at. So you've got these sheets on your table. What's that? Um, Today, Jesus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And so, you know, the minister, whoever's leading the service, is issuing that invitation 
But ultimately, just on behalf of Jesus, come to me, says Jesus. Come again and find satisfaction uh, in me. It might be a praise the Lord, all you people. But it is an invitation because God initiates, not us. That's why the services don't begin. Hey, guys, how you doing this week? You all right? Barry, bad news Everton lost yesterday, wasn't it? Anyone catch Strictly? That kind of like... It's, 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 let's just chat. That's like a chat show host. Okay, this is a serious thing. We're coming to meet with God. It's also, by the way, while we do the notices beforehand, get all that kind of stuff out of the way, because um, notices, thankfully, are not an element of worship. Um, uh, we're, not, we're not, you know, Ant and Deck or Bruce Forsyth or whatever, introducing some kind of crazy chat show. Um, we are coming to meet with God. So God initiates. Um, typically then, whoever's leading will pray what's called a prayer of invocation. This isn't in the service sheet, but that is a prayer asking for God's help. We come with nothing to offer him. We come empty. With, some of us are knackered. Some of us are very conscious of sin. Some of us are, are doubting. Some of us are suffering. Some of us are ill. Some of us are very cast down in mind or, or soul or spirit. Or, we, we come with nothing. And so we pray for God's help. A prayer of invocation, often quite short. And then because we're coming to God, the first thing we, we, we do is we look up and we, we just we praise. So very often that first song will be something that's very Godward focused. Now, or, as it is this week, an invitation you want. You know, come ye sinners, come poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. So an invitation you want, um, calling people to God. Or it might be a kind of holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty or... Um, well, anyway, there's loads of those kind of songs, isn't it? You can think of them yourself. So either in song or in prayer, uh, we'll then praise God for who he is, what he's done. And already, hopefully, what you're, you're seeing is there's, there's, there's actually lots of different prayers in the service. On your sheet, I put 1 Timothy, sorry, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, where Paul says, First, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. What are all those things? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. They're all different types of prayer, aren't they? But Paul can't literally, I mean, Paul's not, he's not such a bad writer. He says, first then I urge that prayers, prayers, prayers and prayers be offered for people. Um, they're different types of prayers. Okay. Thanksgiving, okay. Different for, um, from interceding. Okay, when you sort of, on behalf of someone else, I'm bringing needs to you or whatever. What exactly each of them is right now. Paul clearly wants a different diet. Okay, di- different types of prayers. Not just the please help us type prayers. And so that's why we have that kind of um, come and meet with us type prayer. And the praising God type prayer. As well as later in the service the we pray for Kip and Rachel type, type prayers. So we'll, we'll adore God. We'll praise God in some way in prayer or song. Then typically we'll turn to the reading of the law. This is the kind of gospel renewal, uh, as I like to think of it. The holiness of God reminds us of our sin, or it should do. And therefore it's right that we confess our sin to him. That, that's not so we can get saved again. It's, it's not like you're not a Christian. And our few, I'm safe again. Nor is it, God is furiously angry with me, okay, right for the first seven minutes of the service. And then when I get to the confession of sin, then he calms down. Okay, go on then, I'll forgive you again. No, you're already his son, you're already his child, you're already safe as you could be if you're a Christian. But relationally, it is right that we confess our sins to him. We've fallen short of you again. And he promises to forgive. I mean, the classic 
um, invitation to do this uh, would be in 1 John. So beginning with 1 John, writing to Christians, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you wouldn't say to John, would you? Come on, John, I did that once already when I became a Christian. God's forgiven all my sins. He doesn't need to forgive me again. Uh, if he did say that, John, I think, would say, well, look, yeah, that's sort of right. Hey, once you're forgiven, justified, so you're, you're safe. But relationally, in an ongoing way, it's always right to confess and God will restore, refresh, as it were, that forgiveness again. And so in order to drive us to confession, we'll sometimes read the law, what you should do, perhaps the Ten Commandments or love the Lord your God. And that, in a way, is to convict us. Okay, it is to kind of break us down, the hammer of the law. Uh, often at that point, too, before we actually say a prayer of confession, I'll include some sort of invitation. It, um, it might just be me with a beer in my bonnet, but sometimes in reform services, it, it's a really kind of strict, like, law to, to batter you down, to break you so you confess. Then you confess, and then... You get the comfort, the assurance, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. My slight issue with that is that I don't think we ever will confess our sin, really, honestly, unless we know we're going to get a warm welcome, unless we know we're going to be forgiven. So one of the ones I've used quite often is Adam in the bush. Remember Adam goes into the bush when he sins, doesn't he? He goes and hides, doesn't want to meet with God. That's what we're all like. When we sin, we don't want to meet with God. Um, Just reading the law to Adam, have no other gods before me make no idols don't take god's name in vain you know that's not going to get adam out of the bush it's going to drive him into the bush what gets adam out of the bush or what should get out of the bush is the lord the lord gracious and compassionate slow to anger abounding in steadfast love um, christ came into the world to save sinners of whom i'm the worst and, and so again everything the same every week but very often what we'll do is we all have the law before the confession to remind you that you ought to be in the bush that you're a sinner but, but already just a bit of a gospel invitation that says God will welcome you when you confess. So that law, that invitation to confession. Uh, then a confession together. The reason we do that corporately rather than just sit silently on our own is that it's a corporate gathering of the church. It's modeled with psalms. So psalms like Psalm 51 or 130, they were to be sung corporately. Okay, so it, it's not that a hundred of us are coming together for our individual quiet times. So it can feel a bit odd saying prayers together, but that's a biblical thing to do. 150 prayers to be said together in the Old Testament or sung together in the Psalms, let alone the Lord's Prayer and whatever. So law and and invitation, confession of sin, then the reminder that you are safe. So it's it's one of the sort of the the, um, blessings of being a minister that you can every week, on the basis of God's word, not because I'm a priest, I haven't got any magic powers, but on the basis of God's words, if you put your trust in Christ, you are safe, you are forgiven, you are adopted. Cleanse. He will and he has a cycle, a little gospel cycle, is just about again just hammering the gospel into our heads. Um, Luther said that we we forget the gospel so quickly that we of every minister to hammer it into the heads of the congregation. I need to hammer it into my own head. So that 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 part of the service, it's not trotting through some things we say. It is, yeah, the goodness of the gospel again. Very quickly, just on the last few things, um, most of them a bit more familiar, I guess. 
um, singing spread throughout the service, uh, including psalms, as I've often said. Someone wrote an article a few years ago called What Will Christians Sing? A third of the songs that God wrote are laments. Lord, from sorrows deep I call. Um, very rare nowadays that modern Christians write laments. They're getting a bit better. That's an example. Um, but very rare. So we, we need to sing a wide diet of songs. We want the you know, Sunday roast. You don't want it just to be um, marshmallows. Okay, You need a bit of everything. Vegetables, meat, Yorkshire puddings. Um, so too is singing. It's not all meant to be just, I'm full of joy, Lord. It's meant to be a, a rich diet. The reading and the preaching of God's word, I don't this congregation or this setting I'm persuaded that is um, important but again we're there to engage with God to hear from him as he speaks to us and then the Lord's Supper why do we do the Lord's Supper every week a couple of reasons first of all Jesus did put it as the way to remember him remember at the Last Supper he sits over the disciples he says do this in remembrance of me he doesn't say do small groups in remembrance of me never talks about small groups Uh, he doesn't say do one to ones in remembrance of me do this in remembrance of me. And so at the very least there, I think, is like, hey, we're meant to be remembering Christ each week in the gospel. Let's do it the way he tells us to. Again, my, at least in my past, I'd have been a bit kind of snotty about the Lord's Supper, um, which is foolish. Why He said do it this way, so we'll do it that way. Um, and the other thing to say is it fits with that pattern. Remember the pattern of the sacrifices, sin atoned for, transformation, then the meal? Um Tabernacle, altar, cleansing, bread. That is the gospel pattern, isn't it? Christ died for our sins, the Holy Spirit transforming us, and we're headed to a marriage feast in heaven. Okay, so the service is to that story again. Okay, gospel renewal. Okay, you need to reset, refreshing ourselves in the death of Jesus. Transition in the middle of the service as we pray for God's help, and he speaks to us through his word, changes us. And then fellowship meal with him, communion with him. He so loves us. He so wants to be with us. He wants to eat with us. Yeah, that's the pattern. And then it will close. Prayer, by the way. Um, we, we don't close with prayer. But a, blessing, a benediction or a blessing, same thing. It's not a prayer. A prayer when you ask God something. Okay, It's upward directed. Um, Lord, help me today or forgive my sins or thank you for this a benediction is a pronouncement it is from heaven to earth not earth to heaven the lord bless you and keep you okay it is, it is a you're pronouncing god's attitude towards people god's blessing people and um the idea that god speaking that, that benediction word over you, yeah, over you i bless you all the grace of jesus christ the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all evermore. It's you. It's God, please, would you? It's not a might you. It is a pronouncement. Okay, a little final preaching of the blessing of God. Um, that means, by the way, um, that you can open your eyes and look. Look. <laughs> it's not a kind of this thing. You just look up. Yeah, you're hearing God speak. The reason I raise my hand to do it is because every time anyone does any kind of blessing in the Bible, that's what they do. Um, lift your hands and bless the Lord. Or Anytime a patriarch blesses the, the children, they have their hands on their heads. Okay, but I have time to run around. And you and you and you and you. Um, and so ministers typically, again, the Protestant tradition would raise their hands. Okay, it's not because they're priests. They, um, it's just the, the, the posture used in scripture. So if scripture says do it, we do it. 
So there we go. The whole thing is, as I put on the sheet, a kind of gospel dialogue. Call, confess, comfort of the gospel, consecration as he changes us, communion with him, with, with a blessing. And remember, because we're engaging with God, the idea is that you therefore meet Jesus in, in all the rich ways that he meets us, or at least some of the rich ways the different parts of the service. We begin by Jesus inviting us to come again. Okay, and we, we remember his grace. He wants us. He, his desire is to seek us out. The community of the Lord. Okay, he's not just... Um, you know, he's a the Lord king who to obey. Uh, we love paid for us in even though we failed yet again he we're sort of meeting Jesus in different ways brings us to the throne of his father okay, in prayer we pray in Jesus name and so we're reminded of his sovereignty his might his power his concern he changes or corrects he speaks to us he's a speaking prophet he feasts with us at the table it's not just us having a, me- a little meal we remember stuff he did ages ago. It is supper at the Lord's table. He feeds with us. And so the idea is that when we're switched on and awake spiritually, we are engaging with Jesus in different ways throughout the service. All our different needs. And therefore the whole worship service is like a conversation. God begins it. Okay, he's always the first speaker. God calls us. We respond by praising him. God convicts us of our sin, we respond by confessing. God comforts us with the gospel, we respond in thanksgiving. God changes us, um, uh, speaks to us through his word, we respond again in prayer and praise. And the whole thing, uh, he calls us to the table and we respond by eating and feasting in thanksgiving. And the whole thing ends with his word again, his blessing to send us back out. Grace tops and tails the whole thing. Um, so, there we go, to walk through the steps. That is not everything we can say on worship, very obviously. Um, but I hope it's given you a bit of an understanding about what, um, why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. On the inside of the notice sheet, we put every week three values for the worship, three things we want it to be. We want it Bible-saturated, gospel-shaped, and historically aware, we're not the first Christians in history. It's not, you don't really want me being an inventor of it, it would be a disaster. Um, that's why we say things like creeds and all the rest of it to, to remind us we're part of a much bigger uh, body. There we go, it's five past. Sorry, it was a gallop to get through the last session. Uh, we missed one about two weeks ago when I was away. Um,